You are listening to a Natural Products Insider podcast. With Sandy Almendares, Editor-in-Chief. Brought to you by Supply Side East, April 9 through 10 in Secaucus, New Jersey. Hi, everyone, and welcome to a Healthy Insider podcast. I'm Sandy, and on the phone, I've got Insider's Legal Eagle. We've got Josh Long, who is the legal and regulatory editor of Insider. Hi, Josh. Hi, Sandy. And we are here to kick off Insider's celebration of the 25th anniversary of Deshay, the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act of 1994, which was signed into law on October uh, 25th of 1994, and this law uh, basically set up the framework of the regulatory uh, aspect that we follow for supplements in the United States today. It's something that Josh writes on all the time, Um, and so this podcast is just going to be a brief overview 101 of Deshay. So Josh, let's start with talking about what it amended. So it amended the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, and and what did it do um, to this act? Well, it basically created a, as you mentioned, it created a framework governing uh, dietary supplements. And this is right out of the, uh, this is right out of the Congress's findings. There's many findings here on on why they did what they did, but um, as part of their findings, they said they wanted to set up a, quote, rational federal framework to supersede what they described as a current ad hoc patchwork regulatory policy on dietary supplements. So this was in 1994. I wasn't covering the industry then. Neither one of us was. I was in college. It was a long time ago. But obviously the framework at that time was not working. And so Congress set up this framework governing uh, what we call dietary supplements, which has been widely hailed, at least by industry, as a monumental success. Absolutely. Um, and leading up to Deshay, there was a lot of back and forth, a lot of battle, I would even say, between FDA and the industry because they didn't have a specific regulatory framework for supplements. Um, FDA was you know, saying that dietary ingredients should be regulated as food additives, which is a much higher burden than, than regular foods or as uh, what the supplements are today. Um, there were there was a grassroots effort of consumers. Um, they, you know, they were lobbying um, to create a law and to not take away their supplements. Mel Gibson got in it with a, a, a commercial. If you haven't seen the Mel Gibson commercial, you should definitely Google it. Uh, Google Mel Gibson vitamin C. Um, then there were industry blackout days or retail blackout days where retailers were, you know, they, they wouldn't sell supplements at all. Um, you know, taking a big hit on their business, but showing consumers, like, this is what would happen if FDA gets its way. So there was a, a lot of uh, a rally and um, influence from consumers um, to, to get this passed, and uh, it was definitely a, a big success for the, the industry. So I wanted to give that little background. Um, of course, there's much, much more drama uh, in, in how this law got passed, but let's move forward to what uh, the law says. Um, so FDA continually, still to this day, focuses on the safety aspect of this law. Um, so the dietary supplement first said that the, the burden of, sa- of safety of dietary supplements falls on FDA, the burden of proof. So what, what does that mean? 
the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act has what's known as, you know, adulteration provisions. You know, in plain English, you know, that something is unsafe. For example, a conventional food, you know, let's say an ingredient in conventional food is adulterated. We would interpret that to mean it's, it's unsafe. It doesn't belong in the food. If it's adulterated in a supplement, same thing. It's unsafe. So under Deshaies, um, if the, uh, unlike, you know, uh, pre-market approval with pharmaceutical drugs, if you take, you, you take your, let's say you take your dietary supplement to market, um, some people get harmed and it's allegedly associated with your product. The FDA has the burden of proof in court, in federal court, of establishing that your product is adulterated. So, you know, that's, uh, it really changed the game in terms of, you know, burden of proof is always critical. Who has the burden of proof? If FDA has the burden of proof, it's going to be a lot harder for them to remove something off the market. But I think that reflects the balance in the law. The Congress wanted to promote access to these products because it recognized that these natural products were essential to the health of Americans. But they also wanted to balance that with if there's any safety concerns. So if there is any safety concerns, they gave FDA the tools to take action, but Again, the FDA has the burden to establish that a product is unsafe. And part of the safety outlined in Deshaies were these GMPs, or good manufacturing practices. So what, what are these, and how long have they taken to, to become implemented? The GMPs, the consultants would say, you know, to a large extent, they do, they do touch on safety, but more so they go to quality to make sure that products are manufactured consistently and they're up to quality standards, which CGMP uh, stands for Current Good Manufacturing Practices. And I believe the regulations were adopted in 2004. And seven. So about, 2007. Oh, sorry, 2007, thank you. So several so years after uh, the law was passed, and I believe they went into effect for all size companies in 2010. So the laws have been on the books for you know, even small companies for almost a decade now. In terms of what the law said, I don't believe it actually mandated that FDA create these CGMPs. I'm looking at the actual language of the law, and it said that the secretary, of, secretary may, by regulation, prescribe GMP practices for dietary supplements. But obviously, um, that was contemplated in the law that FDA would do that. They've done that. There's debate on whether those CGMPs have have been a success. You know, large companies, uh, by and large, are, are forming with the standards, but we've, we've done a lot of stories over the years uh, where we took a look at smaller entities, and uh, a lot of smaller entities continue to struggle um, with these regulations. I don't know if Cong Congress obviously didn't, couldn't contemplate that, but that's just the way things have turned out. Right. So would you say that the new dietary provision um, in, in the Shea is, is the safety focus? And, and what is it? Can we talk NDIs? I mean, absolutely. I mean, the, the FDA has emphasized um, in guidance documents and public speeches, et cetera, that their only opportunity to review products before they hit the market is this uh, provision in the statute, uh, this new dietary ingredient provision in the statute, which essentially says that if you have a, a new ingredient in your supplement, and there's exceptions to every rule and every law, but let's just uh, forget the exceptions for a minute. If you have a new ingredient in your supplement, you need to provide documentation and notice to FDA um, what that new ingredient is. You have to identify that new ingredient, and you need to satisfy the uh, statutory uh, standard, which is to establish that the ingredient is reasonably expected to be safe. 
in your uh, dietary supplement. So that's the standard, reasonable expectation of safety. And you need to notify FDA before you go to market with your product. It's not an approval process. It's a notification process. So there is a distinction there. But that is FDA's only opportunity to review the safety of a product before it hits the market. Because if it's, quote, an old dietary ingredient that was on the market in October 1994 beforehand, there's no requirement under the law to notify FDA. You just go to, go to market with your product. And how has the implementation of, of the NDIs played out? I mean, I think, again, there's, there's debate on that issue. I, I would say it hasn't, it hasn't been uh, a smashing success from the reporting we've done over the years. And we've really, you know, we've looked at the number of notifications <clears throat> and FDA's received over, you know, the last several years since the law went into effect. I think it's in the ballpark of 1,100 notifications. 1,100, 1,200 total notifications, NDI notifications. And then you can just do simple math, just compare that to the estimated number of products on the market. According to the commissioner of FDA, there's an estimated 50,000 to 80,000 products on the market or more. You certainly could make a rational argument that a lot of companies are not filing these new dietary ingredient notifications with the agency. There's a totally separate issue, and that is when FDA receives these notifications and it reviews them, does it have objections? Is it concerned about the safety of the ingredient? Does it feel that the submission was not complete? Does it have concerns that it actually doesn't even qualify as a dietary supplement? And over the years, the agency has, uh, for lack of a better term, objected to the majority of these new dietary ingredient submissions for one reason or another. Again, safety concerns, the submission wasn't complete, it's not a dietary ingredient, doesn't belong in a supplement. But I think for the larger companies, what we're seeing is that they're, you know, the more sophisticated companies, they get it. They, you know, if they're willing to invest a lot of money in these submissions, FDA will send a so-called good day letter, essentially saying we don't have any, you know, we don't have any other questions. Now, it's not an approval. FDA is not approving the product. And if your product was to cause safety concerns, the agency has the authority under the law to go after you. But again, the burden would be on them to establish that your uh, product is adulterated. Right. Um, so last part of the shade that I want to cover are the, the su supplement claims, including the structure function claim. Uh, what does the shade say there? The shade allowed companies to make a certain statements about their products, you know, so consumers can get an idea of, you know, what if, if they're looking for a certain benefit from the product, Congress wanted you know, companies to be able to say a few things. Now, what you can't say, I'll start with what you can say rather than what you can say is you cannot say that your product treats cancer or schizophrenia, although lots of products have been marketed as dietary supplements, but they make those claims. But that is explicitly a no-no in the statute. So you can't say your product uh, treats, mitigates, uh, prevents a disease, for example. What you can do is make statements of nutritional support. You can, this is right out of the, right out of the law, uh, you can you can make a statement for a supplement if the statement claims a benefit related to a classical nutrient deficiency disease and discloses the presence of the disease in the United States, describes the role of a nutrient or dietary ingredient intended to affect the structure or function in humans, etc., or describes general well-being from consumption of a nutrient or dietary ingredient. 
to the industry, the most familiar statement that's authorized is so-called structure function claims. Those are commonly uh, made in the industry, like, you know, promotes healthy bones, things like that. You can't just make it without meeting other criteria in the law. You have to have, if you're the manufacturer, you have to have substantiation or support that your statement is truthful and not misleading. And of course, you need to carry the disclaimer that we've all seen on many products at Walgreens and other retailers, which is this statement hasn't been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. It's not intended to treat, diagnose, cure, or prevent any disease. Those are the statements that you are authorized to make under the, uh, the statute. Many companies have made them, and there's also a requirement in the law to notify the secretary or to notify FDA after marketing the supplement with, with your statement. Thanks, Josh. So there's, there's obviously more to Deshay, um, but I don't want this to get too, too long. Um, Deshay also you know, defines what a supplement is. They, they talk, it talks about third-party material, um, third-party educational material. It sets up the Office of Dietary Supplements. So if you're in the supplement industry and you, you're not familiar with Deshay, I, I highly encourage you to go to the law and to, to read up on it. Um, but I want to talk about uh, the 25th anniversary and that Insider is not the only organization that is celebrating. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who is commissioner of FDA, had an announcement in early February that they are going to be making some updates to Deshay or modernizing it, um, as they say. So, Josh, what was his announcement? Okay. Uh, yeah, I can get into his announcement. He talked about moving to strengthen the agency's oversight of dietary supplements. And just to kind of comment on what you just said, obviously the uh, the FDA doesn't have authority to amend Deshay because that's a law. They would have, to, uh, you know, Congress only has authority to, you know, change the law. But the agency did talk about, you know, having conversations around Deshay. And so, you know, it's conceivable that at some point um, following stakeholder meetings that, you know, Dr. Gottlieb or others could, at the agency, could to talk to lawmakers about, you know, potential reforms of, of the law at some point down the road. But again, Congress would be the one to make that call whether they want to want to change the law. But the big news from, from the agency is, you know, the commissioner uh, recognized, and this is in a statement that, quote, changes in the supplement market may have outpaced the evolution of our own policies and our capacity to manage risk, end quote. So I think he's recognized, and the agency as a whole has recognized that a lot's changed over the last uh, five years. And so the FDA wants to be current with the times. They want to be, you know, they want to be effective in policing this uh, evolving uh, marketplace. And so that's why the commissioner made that statement, because the agency is looking to make some, some changes. What exactly those will be uh, remains to be seen. Um, but you did get some insight uh, recently from from Stephen Pave. Um, can you can you uh, elaborate on that? Yeah, I, well, we had a, I had an opportunity to speak to Stephen Tave, who's the director of the Office of Dietary Supplement Programs. Really nice gentleman. Um, he's been a longtime FDA official, and uh, we talked about Deshay. And one of the, one of the interesting things is I think that when the agency is policing supplements. They're very cognizant of the balance that was struck in Deshay. In fact, he talked about that. And that balance, again, is promoting access to these natural products while also protecting consumers from dangerous or, or illegal products. And so FDA is always having to walk that tightrope. They don't want to be overly broad in their you know, guidance documents or how they enforce the law because they don't want to interfere with these products that are lawful and safe. But on the other hand, they do have a duty to protect the public. So, so again, he called them twin pillars, which is, again, promoting 
you know, promoting access to, to these products while also protecting the consumer from, you know, products that are dangerous. We've written about that many, many times over the years. He also indicated to me and, and, and that there's going to be changes, but I don't think they're going to be sweeping changes uh, at the agency. He said to me that, and this is this is a quote, that, that the, the statement by the commissioner was, quote, really an agency articulation of the direction our program has been moving. So under uh, Stephen Tave, the agency has, you know, three main priorities, which is ensuring safety, maintaining product integrity, and informed decision-making. And I think it's just more a big-picture statement by the commissioner that dietary supplements are a definitely a priority at the agency, and the, uh, they're going to continue to be a priority moving forward. Well, thank you so much, Josh, for the insight that you provided today on our Deshay 101 podcast. I really appreciate it. No problem, Sandy. I do want to mention one other, one other quick thing about Deshay. If people are wondering, you know, was, was it a success, you know, again, from industry standpoint, we consider that the law specified that, you know, at the time of Deshay, there was about 4,000 products on the market and uh, revenues of, this is from Congress, you know, at least $4 billion. Well, here we are today, according to Nutrition Business Journal, our uh, former own property that we're good friends with, the revenues are $45 billion, and we have 50,000 to 80,000 products on the market. So if you just look at those facts alone, I think you could at least uh, conclude that the law has been a huge success. Absolutely. And um, please stay tuned to, to Insider as we celebrate Deshay in its 25th anniversary. We've got podcasts scheduled and articles and other videos and uh, image galleries, etc. And of course, we will be celebrating in some fashion at Supply Side West in October. And of course, we will keep you abreast on the conversations that FDA is having um, as it looks to modernize the Shea. For more award-winning podcasts from industry experts, go to insider.com and click in the podcast section. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts by searching Healthy Insider Podcast. Hit subscribe to never miss an episode. To join the conversation about the health and nutrition industry, leave a comment on the podcast's Twitter, Facebook, or SoundCloud account. This episode has been brought to you by Supply Side East, April 9 through 10 in Secaucus, New Jersey.